0: That's great. Okay. Thanks, Greg. And um, definitely feel free to stop and ask questions along the way. Um, so my name is Deborah, and I'm a graduate student in Brittany Sho's lab. And as many of you know, in the Sho lab, we um, use bulbousine algae, so volvox and related green algae, um, to study the question of um, the evolution of multicellularity. So if I have time today after the introduction to the Price equation, I'll talk a little bit about how we're using the Price equation with respect to the algae and multicellularity. Okay, to start with a little background, Um, George Price was an American um, who moved to London in 1967 so this is at the age of 44 he quit his job and took some money from a medical settlement actually and used it to move to London um, and work at the Galton laboratory on um, questions in evolutionary biology. He was actually trained as a chemist Um, and so starting in 1967 he collaborated with um, W.D. Hamilton and John Maynard Smith um, and made some some contributions to evolutionary biology that are still being talked about today. And one of those contributions is the Price Equation, which um, you can look at these two uh, single authored papers by Price for the original references um, explaining the Price Equation. Um, And if you're interested in a little more of the history of his life, um, I would recommend this biography. that talks about uh, Price's life, as well as um, some of the other players in the evolutionary of altruism. Um, So it's quite a story. Not only is it kind of unusual for um, an outsider in the field to make such lasting contributions to the field in a short time, but he also, had a very interesting um, conversion from atheism to Christianity, and then progressively um, dedicated all of his energy and effort into helping the homeless. Eventually, becoming homeless himself, and then committing suicide in 1975. Um, so, quite an interesting personal story as well as um, a scientific story.
1: There's oh,
0: road I didn't know that.
1: Say it again. His daughter lives in Hawaii. Oh yeah. <laughs> Four hours down the road. Like <laughs> down the road. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, okay. So first, I'll go through a derivation of the price equation, and um, while I'm explaining the terms, I'll develop a kind of simple example to help you remember the definitions of the terms. And so the first part of the example is. Um, that you are looking at some population at time zero. And so this population is um, made up of a black individual, a gray individual, and a white individual. So we wanna define things about this population. So one thing is gonna be the Z sub i. So i is just the index referring to the type of individual. Z sub i is the trait value of that individual. So here I said one corresponds to black, 0.5 to mid gray, zero to white. Q sub i is just the frequency of that type of individual in the population at the first time point. Um, So from that, um, and from capital N being the total number of types, you can get the average trait value in the parental population by just multiplying the frequencies times the trait value and adding them all up. So the second part um, of deriving the price equation is a, popu- is a population at a later time. And so here, these individuals are represented in dotted lines just to show that we haven't necessarily measured their trait value. And what you need to know is that there has to be a mapping between parents in this generation and offspring in this generation. Um, so it can be more generally thought of as ancestors and descendants, and it doesn't have to be um, <laughs> asexual is shown here where just one parent is responsible for each offspring, but that's kind of the simpler case. So what I'm showing here is that each of these offspring came from this black parent, each of these offspring came from the gray parent, and each of these offspring came from the white parent.
1: These are panmectic populations? Yes. And they're growing with time, as the as the arrow suggests, and in overall abundance?
0: Yes, in this example, um, they are growing with time, yes. Did someone defines pan and
2: make it? Well, there's no. One of the big things that could be done in the price equation is level of population
0: So there's no subdivisions in the parental population, though, that make a difference for the calculations of the standard price equation. Um,
1: and if I understand correctly, panmectic merely is a fancy name, a pretentious name for like a well-mixed, uh, well mixed. Uh, you well
0: know, mixed. Okay. Yeah, well, we can talk about this more at the end, but I mean, my impression is that, um, yeah, so, I mean, for the simple example I'm developing, it doesn't really come up because I'm just considering asexual populations. So each parent-offspring relationship is independent. You know, there's no interaction of the parents to produce an offspring. Not
1: a finite amount of space, for example? Like, I mean, if you have, create lots of individuals, they're eventually going to overflow the test.
0: Right, so um, a finite amount of space isn't necessarily uh, part of the basic price equation, I would say. Um, again, feel free to jump in if there's diversities of opinions on that. But um,
1: Well, these are just offspring, yeah, regardless yeah, of at some way. point in the future. Right. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Okay, so um, So now we're going to define variables related to the offspring, the descendant population. So q prime sub i is the number is the frequency of descendants of each type of individual. So, for example, Um, the first type of individual, the black individual, gave rise to 125 out of 155 of the descendant population. So the key to recognize here is that um, Q sub i prime is not the frequency of black individuals in the descendant population as you might um, think. It's the frequency of the descendants of the black individuals in the descendant population. And then you also define um, Z prime sub i as the average trait value of the descendants of type i. So um, in this simple example, the black individuals just give rise to a set of offspring that on average are black. So Z prime sub one is just one. Um, The mid gray individuals give rise to a set of offspring that on average are slightly lighter gray. So, um, so their trait value goes from 0.5 to a z prime of 0.2, and then in the white individual, there's also no change. So, the z prime sub three is also zero. Edward,
3: yes. why not you just explain again why why it goes to 0.2? Explain again to me.
0: So, um, this is just an abstract example. And I'll get into later a possible explanation of why, but the point is just to show how the variables are de- are defined. So that for some reason, which we don't necessarily know, when this individual reproduces, it tended to make individuals that on average are lighter than itself.
2: But there's also some distribution of uh, the individual's offspring. That, right. Yeah. The variety of trait values, and you know, you don't care about the variance so much. Just looking at the average.
0: Right. Exactly. We're just looking at the average, and um, and the price equation. You can define z in a way to get at the variance of characters if that's what you're interested in, but for the kind of basic derivation, I'll just show how to do it with an average well, character the variable. If
4: it's not defined by z, and what defines the.
0: If the parent-offspring offspring mapping defines the separation, just okay? Lineage. Yes, just lineages. There two if there's two parents, then you just weight it. So, um, so each parent is like half a parent. <laughs>
1: And this particular trait is not quantized. It's like height or weight. Right. It Comes from many, many uh, genetic traits. Well, or as a result, it's not it's as simple as blue eyes and brown eyes. It doesn't really. Like it can be.
5: She's just it, working through an example. So it doesn't, doesn't really matter. matter yeah. It's
1: much more general than this. Yeah, right. and yeah. she's giving that. In this example, it's it's a quanti- it, it's a non-quantized trait.
0: Yeah. So. Um, So just, I think, wait until I go through the whole example, and then if you still have that question, we'll talk about it more. Um, Okay, so this example just shows, again, now we have um, frequencies and trait values in the descendant population, so we can define Z bar prime to be um, the average trait value in this whole population of descendants, and one way you could calculate that is just by adding up the frequency of each of these bins times the average trait value in each of these bins.
2: You might want to write that on board. I'm not sure everyone can see. Okay. This is
0: unblocking. Oh, I see.
1: Equation in the lower right.
0: Okay, so just on the lower right, so z bar prime is just the sum so here, n is the number of types. You're going from 1 to n of q prime i times z prime i. OK. Any questions so far? So, um, yes. There were, there were a lot of OK. Questions. But yeah, so I'll
1: keep going and
0: then maybe. Um, to think about evolution is that evolution is a change in the average trait value of a population at one time compared to the average trait value in the population at another time. So that change is delta z which is just our z bar bar prime minus z bar. So in this example that I'm developing, you can see the overall population um, at the second time point has a trait value of 0.839, whereas at the first time point, it just had a trait value of 0.5. It was just on average mid gray. So the population is getting darker over time, so delta Z bar is a positive number of about 0.34. Okay so that example was really just to help see how you might use these variables in a real um, example. So the variables we've defined are zi which is the trait value of a type in the ancestor population, z prime i which is the average trait in the descendants, um, qi which is the frequency of i type in the ancestor, and q prime i which is the frequency of the descendant of the i type in the descendant population, and then further we can define these um, delta qis and delta zis just by subtracting the ancestor value from the descendant value.
5: So why uh, um, why is the average trait value uh, changing? So you're imagining uh, these mutations, or because at the moment everything's asexual.
0: Right. So is z
5: a heritable trait?
0: Um, so, I mean, in this example, yes, Z is heritable.
5: Then um, Z shouldn't be changing. But,
0: but it's not perfectly heritable. I mean, just because it's heritable doesn't mean it has to be perfectly heritable.
5: Oh, okay. I guess I'd like to understand. So, why is it not heritable? Because of okay. mutations? Are we already introducing mutations there, or?
0: Okay. Can you hold on to that question? And when I get to the end, we'll see if you still have it.
1: I can hold on to mine as well. But is there an? Yeah. So just tell me. But yeah. is there an implicit uh, selective advantage uh, for black in this case, since they are so much more fertile than white?
0: I would say yes. So,
1: so selective advantage it could cause this thing to bounce around uh, to change. No, that, that that's that's. So, true.
0: so the selective advantage has to do with. The relationship between these traits and these frequencies, and then a separate issue is the fact that these traits aren 't being transmitted perfectly, and that 's what the price equation is going to show us how to separate those two issues um, so okay, so just bear with me and we'll we 'll decompose the transmission bias a little bit more um, next so Okay, so we already defined z bar prime as the sum of the um, qi primes times zi primes, and z bar as the sum of the qi's times the zi's. Um, So to derive the price equation, uh, next step is um, to add, to subtract and add the same term. So this sum of qi prime times zi prime. Um, And then you can just combine these two terms. To get the sum of Qi prime times the difference between the Zs, and combine the second two terms to get the Zi times the difference between the Qis, and then just replacing um, by our delta Qs and delta um, Zs, we get that the total change in the tr- in the average trait is can be de- decomposed into these two terms. One which is qi prime times delta zi, and the other which is delta qi times zi prime. And so, just switching these two terms um, gives you one way to write the price equation. Um, So, the first term is the sum of the delta qi's times the zi's, and the second term is the qi primes times the delta zi's. as you may have noticed or may have already been aware, um, the price equation was presented um, with covariance notation and so um, first i 'll go through kind of explaining the intuition about this notation and then i 'm going to explain how you get how you can get to the covariance notation so <clears throat> So what's going on in our example if we apply these two terms? So first we would calculate delta QI times ZI um, and add them all up and we get this positive number 0.387. And so what this term is telling us is that, um, that because of the relationship between the productivity of a type and the color of a type. Um, the average color of the population is going to be changing. And it's going to be changing in this positive direction. It's going to be getting darker. Now, what the second term is telling us is that there's also change happening from the delta ZIs. So from the fact that inheritance isn't perfect. In this case, this um, ancestor is giving rise to descendants that are on average lighter. So... um, so for, the, for i equals 2, um, you get a negative term here and you see that the total change in the population is decomposed into these two parts. One part that has to do with um, the fecundities of the types related to their traits and one part that has to do with imperfect transmission of the traits. And so that's what the price equation is getting you. It's an exactly true statement that intuitively is separating two kinds of changes that are happening in a very abstract population that doesn't have to be biological entities. It can be kind of any kind of population where you can have this set mapping between two sets.
2: What was your interpretation of the first term? I think you said it.
0: The first term is telling you um, how the trait change is affected by the relationship between the productivity of the types and the color of the types, and this will probably become more clear when I do the covariance notation, which I'm going to do right now. So, so okay, that's one way of deriving the price equation, which um, I personally find more find useful, but um, the standard way is the covariance notation. So. Um, let's switch to that. So to do that we're going to get rid of um, the QI prime over here and instead we're going to say um, WI is just the fitness of each type and what the fitness of each type is defined as is the number of offspring that it has. So for type 1 it's 125, for type 2 it's 25, for type 3 it's 5. So from that definition of fitness, um, we can get back to our QI prime. So um, here, MI is just the number of I-type individuals in the ancestor population. So QI prime, just the definition of a frequency, is you add up all the descendants of the I-type, so the number to start with times their fecundity, and you divide by the total number of descendants. Um, Then you can divide both top and bottom by the total number in the ancestor population. That's just a constant. And you get um, the frequency in the ancestor population times the fitness in the ancestor population divided by the sum, which is just the average fitness. So just by definition, we have this equality. Okay, so we've already derived this version of the price equation, we have this equality, um, now we're going to show the covariance version. And how you get to that, so take the first term first um, and replace the delta qi with qi prime minus qi, um, then replace our definition of what qi prime is, um, Multiply in the z's and then you can take out the w bar and separate out the sum and what you see is you get a term that's the expectation of z times w minus a term that's the expectation of z times the expectation of w and so you might recognize this as the covariance of the trait and the fitness. Um, So a lot of people have pointed out that it's a bit of an abuse of the notation of covariance Um, because covariance is typically used to apply to a model with random variables. Um, And in this model, ZI and WI aren't random variables. Um, So it can be misleading kind of depending on how you're thinking about covariance. Um, But kind of the critical point of it is that, just to remind you, another way of writing covariance is the expectation of um, Z minus its mean times W minus its mean. So covariance is telling you how are these two variables changing together, right? So the more they're changing together, the higher the covariance is. Either positive if they're changing in the same direction or negative if they're changing in opposite directions. Um, So So the covariance of the trait value and the fecundity of that individual divided by the mean fitness is just the same as that first term, which is the delta Qis times the Zis. That's just another way to write it.
1: did did Price have in the back of his mind though uh, the transition to a more conventional definition of covariance by summing over histories? Um, That is replaying this uh, this, Mapping from the initial population to the final population, there's stochastic effects due to either the environment or number fluctuations or whatever. It, 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 you think that's what he had in the back of his mind? Is um, people use it and then, then it becomes a, probably a more conventional uh, covariance if you sum over histories?
0: So certainly the way he presented it was as a mathematical identity, okay. which... Means it's not just what you. It's, yeah. Right, it's,
5: it's a it's mathematical identity. It's basically chain rule of differentiation. Right, mm-hmm. we're just calculating the total change in time as uh, sort of, uh, in terms of partial derivatives, change in frequencies, plus uh, direct change uh, in time of, of of the train. Right, so.
0: Um, Sure, so, I mean, it is just a mathematical identity, but the power of it is that it's extremely general, and it's not...
5: So is chain rule. (laughs) Yeah,
0: sure. I mean, yeah, so maybe we can discuss more whether or not you think it's a useful mathematical identity, but um, I think as I go through the rest of it, it might become clearer what insights um, came from it, yes.
4: Uh, going back <coughs> to your first slides, I just wanted to understand one thing. This zi uh-huh. and the z prime, ultimately, you, are, you will measure it somehow. Is that correct? I mean, in real life? Sure, yeah, in real life. You, mm-hmm. you, are, you are able to get those values from, some, yes. from field work or from, some, or from your experiment. <coughs> okay, thank
2: well, you. Okay. What Boris is pointing out is, mathematically, it's almost trivial. Yeah. What, what you're saying, I think, is that maybe it shifts your attention to certain variables that uh, are, you know, not completely attributed, but I mean, that are, uh, you know, make you think about the problem in a certain way.
0: Yes, I think that's exactly what I'm trying to say. That the reason people are still talking about this so much is the conceptual interpretation of it, and I'll have a lot more to say about that.
5: Yeah. It's also very closely related to Fisher's uh, fundamental theorem of natural selection, yes. which relates uh, the rate of adaptation to, to the variance, which is, again, a completely yeah, correctness.
2: Iraq- if ZI is, is
5: fitness. Precisely. <laughs> Precisely. And uh, there is a sense in which uh, that is not quite an exact statement, but an approximate statement, mm-hmm. despite uh, much discussion in, uh, in the literature. And uh, But what's very important is that uh, it is very useful in the sense that if you know the variance, or in this case, a covariance, and if you can measure it, then you can immediately predict what happens in the next uh, instance of time, next generation. Right? Right. But people very often apply it uh, to uh, uh, describe long-term evolution. Right? And that is absolutely just like... Uh, uh, Fisher's theorem does not tell you much about because you have to know the variance. And the variance doesn't have to depend doesn't have to be constant. It can uh, depend <coughs> on time, it depends on mutation rate and uh, uh, recombination and it depends on
1: everything. <laughs> right? So when That's you sorry. say variance, Boris, you, you don't mean covariance, you mean the variance of the individual traits. Well,
5: uh, I, I, I just mean the variant.
4: But you're just focusing yeah. on the first term. There's a whole yeah, other term. So. Oh, exactly. There's a whole other term exactly. in this part of the conceptual <laughs> analogy of it. Okay, so. But just, yeah. just to add uh, uh, one thing to this, uh, on the other hand, this variation that you measure does not uh, imply that you are taking this variation in closely related moments in time.
0: Yeah, exactly, it doesn't, yes. Time 0 and time 1 and can be
4: like a derivative. anything. It's kind of funny yeah. in, that context, in that context, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, well,
4: it's a discrete
1: version of the chain rule of applicable to a 100 generation separation. Right? Yeah.
0: Okay, so to get the second term um, using our definition of qi prime in terms of the fitnesses Um, again we just uh, start with what we had which is the sum of qi prime times delta zi and we substitute for qi prime and then we rearrange and we see that the second term is the expectation of the fitness times the delta z the change in trait during transmission again divided by the mean fitness. So this is kind of the common form um, of the price equation, where you have the first term that's typically um, associated with change due to natural selection, and that term is the covariance of the trait and fitness, and the second term, which is the expectation of um, the fitness times the trait change, which is typically interpreted as transmission bias or change due to transmission.
2: so all of these expectation values involved in these <laughs> formulas within the covariance or these last terms are all with respect to the, distri- the initial distribution.
0: Yes, exactly. The, the, the three types, the, yes. The, if
2: the, I had th- tracked the distribution as it was shifting, then I would get different points. Yes,
0: exactly. So that um, was the kind of... Um, yeah, that notational convention is what allowed Price to come up with this uh, identity. Yeah.
5: So yes, should there be an i on those? So an index i in this last average.
0: In the expectation. Uh, yeah.
1: Otherwise, <laughs> I got, maybe I got lost in the.
0: Um, no. So by expectation, I just mean the sum from i equals one to n of all the w i's times delta z i's.
1: So, so that's w- what I mean
0: by e. So right,
1: the i's are. So you you couldn't put an it. i, a subscript i on the w and a subscript i on the delta z, you know, inside the expectation.
0: Um,
2: well, you can, you can actually change the second term to covariance,
1: right? Is
0: yes. Yes, you can also, I mean.
1: <laughs> and you have that final term that's the e prior.
0: Right, there's certainly other decompositions. This is just the one that is presented in um, the original Price Papers. It's two terms, not three terms. Um,
6: and you're the W bar's too, just turn into relative
0: fitness, yes? Yes, that's true. So, um, so WI divided by W bar is typically called relative fitness, so... Um, Mm -hmm. So another way of saying this term is that it's the covariance of the trait with the relative fitness of the individual. Um. It might be worth pointing out too Mm that the
1: the equation in the first part is what they call in quantitative genetics called the Erger's equation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely interesting connections to other kind of basic um, Uh, formulas like you said Fisher's fundamental theorem and the breeder's equation and um, so yeah there's a lot of good literature that kind of reviews all those connections if it's something you're interested in Um, Frank has written several articles and I know um, um, actually I'm not sure if you're a co-author on this but Bruce Walsh has published online a a chapter about the price equation for the upcoming book um, which is quite good and Goes into a lot of this. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're eagerly waiting <laughs> the next book. Okay, so, um.
6: anyhow, the first part of that equation I mean, anybody who eats or wears clothes with natural fibers is growing out of that first part of the equation, the breeder's equation.
0: <laughs> oh, good point, yeah. So that was kind of basically empirically derived from the uh, need of the interest of people in artificial selection. is um, that people kind of discovered this first part. But I think a lot of the novelty of the price equation, especially for levels of selection issues, is specifying exactly this second part so Robertson had already specified this first part and just said plus a transmission bias but by specifying the second part exactly um, it allows you to see how the Delta Z um, which is transmission bias at one level can be due to selection at the lower level and so that's what I'll talk about next Um, so first just to kind of summarize so far So we have this kind of example um, set mapping between the ancestors and the descendants. And what the price equation, the traditional partition is telling us is that um, the change due to natural selection is making the population darker, but the change due to transmission bias is making the population lighter. And you can just add these two and get the net effect of the change in the trait value. So again, Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna say, well, what if we treat this delta Z as um, a delta Z bar and look within um, these entities and um, see a selection dynamic going on at the lower level. And so um, I guess what I should say at this point is that non-zero transmission bias can come from a whole bunch of different causes. And one possible cause is lower level selection. And so that's the kind of example I'll develop now to show you how lower level selection shows up as transmission bias at the higher level.
1: So when you say lower level selection, you mean within the the gray population? Exactly.
0: That within the gray population, there's a population exactly analogous to this kind of thing having the same kind of set mappings.
3: So, Go ahead. So now yep. you're assuming that these populations don't mix, <laughs> correct? Right. Because otherwise... The
0: populations within each individual are separated. Other. Sorry?
3: Otherwise the populations would be competing with each other, is that what you're saying? If you're taking... I'm just
0: saying that, that if you imagine um, that within each of these entities, there's smaller things that themselves have parent-offspring relationships, then each of these entities is kind of a world unto itself where you can have a process exactly analogous to this whole thing going on.
1: And would it be a, a, a fair example, perhaps not the only example, to imagine that the black are uh, homozygotes and the white are homozygotes, and yes. therefore they're, they read true, right. but the gray is something in between?
0: Yes, and that's exactly the example that I have in mind. And so if you want to think about it that way, that's definitely a good way to think about it. But yes, it's not, the point is that it's more general than that. It's not the only example.
2: Well, they'd only bring you through if they were self Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, which, so, so in this example, yeah, they're just asexual, so. Could
2: I ask a question about the previous one? Mm-hmm. Your um, focus here was on the expectation values, the average trait values. Mm-hmm what about other modes or you know, other moments? I other
0: moments, other yeah. Other
2: moments of the distribution that might be, right. you could say evolution's not about averages, it's yeah. about other things,
0: right? Right, so, um, so that's an interesting um, comment and it's not as hard to deal with as you might first expect because, um, so I presented Z as kind of a character trait that you go and you measure, um, but actually Z, could be defined um, as the squared deviation of that individual from the population mean. Yes, for instance. And then um, when you average them, you get the variance. So delta Z bar is the variance in the population, and you can ask, well, how does the variance in the population change under selection? So there's, there's really very little restriction in what you can consider Z to be, and so that sort of addresses that problem. (coughs) Um, Okay, so so to look at how lower level selection can show up as transmission bias, um, now we need to know more than just the average trait of all these offspring. So so in this example, again, with um, diploid genetics kind of in mind, I have um, that this mid-gray individual, when it sells and produces offspring, um, actually produces one black offspring, a bunch of mid-gray, and even more white offspring.
2: <coughs>
0: and so this could be due to, for example, having two particles inside the mid-gray offspring. Again, if you want, think of it as a black allele and a white allele, a big B and a little b and its offspring are either homozygous for the black allele, homozygous for the white allele, or heterozygous. And so that situation gives you this kind of average light gray thing. So to apply the price equation at the lower level, at the level of the small particles, what we're going to do is we we're ignore the higher level. So we take away these boundaries and we see that what we have here is a population where the frequency of each allele is just 50% and then later we have a population where the frequency of each allele has changed. So the final thing we need to know to apply the price equation is the parent offspring mapping at this level, at the particle level. So here we're just going to assume that the particles breed true. So all of the black particles trace back to the black ancestor, all of the white particles trace back to the white ancestor. Um, So now we have an exactly analogous kind of set mapping to what we had at the higher level, but it's contained within the mid-gray individual Um, and what we see at this level is that the black allele is actually really bad. Its fitness is only 10, whereas the white allele's fitness is 40. So rather than being represented fairly in the gametes of that mid-gray individual, there's some kind of meiotic drive that's over the white alleles. Um, and Again, so in this example, they just breed true. So the second term of the price equation goes out at this level. There's no transmission bias, um, but there's a covariance between the trait and the fitness, and at this level, the covariance is negative. So you're getting a decrease in the color of the population due to selection at the lower level. So when we zoom out and look at the higher level, it shows up as just a transmission bias. When we zoom in and look at the lower level, it shows up as natural selection. And that, I think, is really the power of the price equation to show um, that natural selection at one level can show up as transmission bias at the higher level.
4: Yes? So, let me see, so you, you, you you go to the lab, you get the number, the number of different individuals, You measure the z i's, right? Then you go to this level, you do the same trick, and then you get two numbers. And I I just would like to understand what you do with these numbers. So once you get these numbers, it's just that you get to know uh, that the fact that you get like a negative change or whatever, and and the the fact that you can identify where this negative change comes from, is just, so the power of the price equation is to, to tell you where, this change comes about? Or, what do you do with the number if it's not this kind of information that you get? You you see what I'm... I'm I'm not so sure I understand your question, so... You get minus 0.3. What do you do with this
0: number? So, I mean, the price equation, we're not talking about data here. We're talking about just a mathematical identity. Um, So it's really just about how do you describe this kind of abstract situation that corresponds to what we consider natural selection is. Um, as far as what you do when you have the trait values. Um, so isn't that the change in the mean for
2: the subset
6: of the population that were the gray balls to start with? Yes. If you did that for all these, so.
0: If I Sorry, if I can go back. Yeah, so in this other form of the price equation, remember we had QI prime times delta ZI. So the delta ZI for the larger gray balls is just minus 0.3. So this transmission bias in this level is coming from natural selection at the lower level. So
5: I don't quite understand the... The fact that it's coming from natural selection on the lower level is a little model that uh, you just defined. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the change in Z can come from uh, that small structure. Or uh, if I just thought of that thing as uh, a single uh, bacteria, mm-hmm. uh, we could have gotten delta Z from a mutation.
0: Right, exactly, yeah. There's a lot of sources
5: that could contribute to this. So, so, I don't particularly see the magic of so, this equation in the... Uh, okay, I think I know how to combine these terms, uh, so yes. I completely agree with you.
0: So, I think um, the reason why I personally in, am interested in it is because when you think about transitions in individuality and transitions in levels of selection, um, what you really want to know is how much selection is happening at the lower level and how much is happening at the higher level. And so the price equation gives you a way to start grappling with this quantitative question that you consider each level separately and then you can separate out natural selection at the higher level and when you're considering the higher level the effects of selection at the lower level don't have to be dealt with as selection. They're just kind of dealt with as transmission bias. Um, so, I'll try to explain more, and we can come back to your comment if
4: you want. If you of a behavioral trait, like Z would correspond to change behavior. Trait. <laughs> it doesn't make it more trivial or transparent to the audience. If, if to Z were a behavioral trait, it's corporate cooperation versus not cooperation.
0: Then sure, I mean so could,
5: this, this is this kind of points to the underlying natural
4: selection aspect of the behavioral changes at a lower level. Is, is
0: that reasonable? Yeah, I mean, I think that's reasonable. So in this example, kind of if you want to look at it as a traditional cooperation versus defect problem, within this group, the defectors are winning, driving the trait change towards defection whereas between groups, the groups with a higher amount of cooperators are winning driving the trait towards cooperation so you clearly see these separation, that there's two separate processes contributing to the overall trait change
5: yes. The biggest gripe for the price equation is that uh, it's not really fundamental it's uh, derived in the following sense and as, uh, as you're constructing your example so you start with dynamics of the population. And this population may have fitness diversity, may have trait diversity. This trait may be fitness itself, or maybe we're looking at some other trait which is correlated with fitness. And you define some sort of dynamics. You say, what is happening to this population in the next generation? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's expanding population, maybe it's asexual, maybe it's sexual, maybe. Right? so. Um, then you can ask what is happening to the mean fitness from one generation to another right? you write down that uh, dynamical equation for fitness and trait joint distribution of the population and then you can average it you can uh, calculate what's happening to uh, average fitness to average trait and just as you explained it will turn out to be related to variance, fitness, covariance of the trait, and there will be these additional transmission terms, or mutation terms, or recombination terms, and uh, and that is a completely correct statement. The only problem is that it relates dynamics of the average to the time-dependent variance and covariance. So, in physics, we encounter the situation all the time one starts trying to write down equations for the moments as an average covariance, the third moment, the fourth moment, and they do not close. Right? And so, that system by itself cannot be solved with additional assumptions, something else. Or you have to go back to the underlying equation for the distribution, right? So, if I just start with uh, Fisher fundamental equation, or with price equation, which is basically the first equation in this moment hierarchy, then I'll have to supplement some additional assumptions about what's happening to the second moment in order to get anywhere. So,
0: I'm not sure I'm understanding, are you saying that the, that one issue that crops up is so here you have trait values of individuals and here you just have averages of blocks of individuals. So if you want to know, if you wanted to iterate this and say what happened to the next step, you couldn't do it, right? Yep. Okay, so that's true but it to me that criticism kind of misses the point because the point is that by some conceptual definition of evolution, what evolution is, is the change in a mean trait in a whole population over some span of time. That's what our thing of interest is, over just this span of time, not iterating it. And if that's your interest, then one way to write down exactly where that's coming from is this. and you can gain some insight from writing it down that way.
5: As what happens from one time slice to the next, then you're done.
0: Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, anyway, we can-
6: iterative, just iterative. And it's Go good for ahead. any two points. Another issue, though, that uh, puzzles me that if you were to iterate this, then there needs to be some sort of explicit um, process going on at the, level of the collective, some birth-death process, Yes, which is not required here.
0: Right. So here, I think, um, yeah, I think that's an interesting point, um, that here really what you're seeing is kind of the abstract elements that Darwin was talking about you're seeing inheritance of a trait value, broadly conceived, just as is there a correlation between the parent and the average value in the offspring. You're seeing a relationship between the trait and how productive those individuals are. So you are seeing kind of the basic elements that Darwin was talking about and nothing more. Um, If you really... Yeah, if you want to get into the issue of... um, of life cycles and how the actual, how the life cycle affects these elements, then I feel like that's another um, level. And I think it is a level that you have to address in multi-level selection issues, which um, maybe I should just go through some more slides and return to that point.
4: Uh, Maybe you will come to that and then of course I will wait. if when you get these two numbers, one from the lower level selection and the other, do you use some criterion to define them? When when you start having, uh, do these numbers help you to define uh, or to classify this system as having as being already or having already undergone this multi this uh, multicellularity transition or something like that? Do you compare these numbers Is that some criterion that you use? Based on um, the results of, this, of your analysis of the price equation?
0: I think I'll talk about that more, and if you still have that question, maybe at the end.
4: And ask if we it let again. You get far enough in
1: this wonderfully pedagogical talk, can you actually <laughs> apply this to Volvox? Um, well, to relatives of Volvox. Yes. Well, yeah, that's, that'd be fine. That'd okay, be great.
0: Okay, so where was I? Um, <clears throat> Okay, so to summarize the part that's kind of just about introducing the basics of the price equation, um, I think we've already talked about most of these points that the price equation is general and it's exact. So it has the kind of generality that Darwin had verbally, um, but it's mathematically exact. Um, It's just a tautology, it's just a true statement based on how the terms are defined. And. One reason that it's interesting is that it can aid in specifying what is meant by change due to natural selection and quantifying what is meant by change due to natural selection. Um, And finally, that it shows how selection at a lower level can show up like transmission bias at the higher level. So, okay, now I'm going to transition into talking about levels of selection during the transition from unicellularity to multicellularity. And so the basic idea, I think, is that before the evolution of multicellular things, either all or most of natural selection was occurring at the cell level. Um, After multicellularity, all or most of natural selection is occurring at the cell group level. I think for a defense of that statement, I would say that um, kind of in this conference we've heard about this idea of, um, of organisms as bundles of adaptation, that that's what an organism, how we usually recognize organisms. So if you think of adaptation as coming directly from natural selection, then the fact that you have bundles of adaptations at the cell group level means for the most part you have natural selection at the cell group level. So. <coughs> So this is how I see the connection between levels of selection and price partitions and the transition to multicellularity is that if you want to quantify how much adaptation is at the cell level versus how much adaptation is at the group level, you have to be able to quantify how much selection is at the cell level and how much selection is at the group level. And
2: So even at the beginning there,
6: cellularity, I mean, there's potentially a lower level of selection, right? Bias gene sure, right, right,
0: okay. A yes. You say a
2: lower level
0: than the cell level. Yes, I would say that's a lower level than the cell level. Yeah, so um, that's a piece of complexity that I was just kind of tabling and just considering this transition. Any other questions? Okay, so <clears throat> um, As Michael already pointed out, there's other decompositions um, that you can make with these price terms. You can split this expectation term into a covariance and an expectation. You can combine these two covariances into a covariance. So all of these are just mathematically true statements just like the traditional price equation is. But the point with respect to quantifying levels of selection is that even though all of these are mathematically true, if we agree that it makes sense to say some trait change can be caused by the lower level selection and some amount of trait change can be caused by the higher level selection and we want to quantify that difference, then it commits you to a realist position on... um, on a correspondence between a decomposition and separate causes. Um, so, even though it's clear and uncontroversial that all of these are mathematically true, um, people are talking and arguing about the interpretation of these terms in terms of causes, in terms of does this really capture what we mean by saying that's the amount of trait change due to natural selection, caused by natural selection? So that's a kind of much harder philosophical question, but it's not just a question that's interested to, interesting to philosophers, it's something that's inherent in the way almost all biologists think about natural selection, natural selection as a cause of adaptations, as a cause of trait change.
1: Presumably there's not one correct answer you know, if this were again, I'm sorry to, to use this analogy to physics, we would spit, pick one definition and we would stick with it. And different experimental groups, if they use the same definition, should get the same answer. Is is it more profound than that?
0: Um, I think I think it's not as simple as just picking a definition and going with it empirically, because Um, The question is really how to recognize adaptation at different hierarchical levels. And um, So if we want to say that natural selection is a cause of adaptation, cell level natural selection causes cell level adaptation and group level natural selection causes group level adaptation, then there is just one right answer in any given case as to whether a given group is adapted at the group level or it's adapted at the cell level or it's adapted at some specific mixture of the two levels. I mean, there's, yeah, sorry, do you have a question?
6: I mean, I, I agree with the way you just presented that statement, but does the price equation allow us to even come to the correct answer? We could wrongly attribute some process to the higher level that in fact is entirely a property of the lower level entities.
0: Right, so okay. So that is actually a good segue into my next um, slide. So the traditional interpretation of the price equation, and I don't know what happened to the bar here, this is supposed to be delta Z bar, um, is that this first term is changed due to natural selection and the second term is changed due to transmission bias, which may or may not have to do with lower level selection. So one obvious problem with this kind of causal gloss on this term is that um, delta ZI could just be correlated with another trait that's actually causing high fitness. right? So already there's obviously issues with this, um, this interpretation. So first let's just set aside that issue and say, okay, we're gonna assume that Z is not correlated with any other fitness-affecting trait. And furthermore, we're gonna assume that there's absolutely no transmission bias, so we're gonna get rid of the second term. So now, are we safe in saying that, that this term is capturing change due to natural selection?
4: So I don't quite understand the, yeah. the, the assumption. I
5: mean, <laughs> we are looking at the, the correlation of trait Z with, uh, with fitness there.
0: Right, So, but the question is, are we justifying in saying that that this term is capturing change due to natural selection for Z? And in order to be justified in that, we have to account for the fact that um, selection might be for some other character that's just as correlated with Z. So, for example, if Z is height and, okay, yeah, so...
5: Absolutely. But-
0: so I'm saying.
5: But that equation says, as you say, it's a it's a sort of mathematical uh, sort of truth, lyric, yes. and it says what it says. Sure. But you give the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the right answer. It's just uh, you're interpreting. I, I don't entirely understand the why uh, uh, one is uh, trying to interpret this. Terms so far.
0: So So we're trying to interpret.
5: There are many ways in which you can generate both of these terms. Right?
0: Well, I would say that in the traditional presentation of the price equation, that it is presented as this term captures the change due to natural selection. I would say that's a standard presentation of the price equation. It's debated for sure, but.
2: You would like to have some character that you're denoting by Z that's really a character that's causally
5: related to fitness. Yes. But the problem is we're bundle you know, of genes, right? Yeah. But, but, but the statement is true for characters that are and are not.
0: Yes. It's exa- that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's not debated. The point is what do we have to do in order to get a statement that is closer to what we want, which is a quantification of the change that is caused by natural selection. That's, kind of, that's the goal.
4: But, but there is another problem, I guess. is because I guess different people may want different things, even because of the concept, the way they understand what is the effect of natural selection on, on a population. Sure. So that, that's why I think it's, S- s- admitting that that's a true statement, the equation is a true statement, then it's, it's a decomposition problem. It's like a classification problem, right? right. You just have to call names to things and p- different people call it different things, and then- Right, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's equally right in their <laughs> <But> <laughs>
0: interpretation of what a term well, means, I mean. But,
5: uh, but maybe in- instead one can focus on uh, trying to describe some specific phenomenon, and uh, try to understand the evolution of uh, in this or that system, and uh, actually try to see what's happening to the trait. Uh, I don't know the size of uh, you know of hogs, right? But just uh, seeing. And, uh, And focus on that, and then uh, we won't have to worry uh, about terminology so much.
0: Okay, of course it's possible to focus on what's the change in the trait, what's the change in the size of hogs, or whatever. That's a perfectly legitimate question. But if your question is about group adaptation, it's about how much is this group adapted versus just being a group of things that are adapted at the lower level, if that's the question you're interested in, then you're committed to trying to find a statistical decomposition that corresponds to causes.
6: But you need to know something about process again, don't you, at this higher level? This seems to me where I stumble. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, this is a statement about change, evolutionary change, and we wish to attribute, thinking about levels of selection, uh, um, a, a contribution. Um, uh, to fitness of uh, due to that is not accountable at the individual level. That we would therefore attribute to between group level selection. Right. Um, but then I seem to want to know about the process, and maybe this is what Boris is also. You know, so, so how is this being affected? Because without understanding the process, I realize I could get tripped up and I could yeah. reach the wrong. So, so, without an explicit term concerning how that higher level entity. Uh, participates in the process of evolution by natural selection, by describing birth and death at that higher level. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I completely agree with you. And, and, so. <laughs> and that,
6: uh, precisely
5: takes us back to writing down, uh, like, dynamical equation from generation to generation of the probability distribution. and. Uh, Uh, It will obey price equation in the sense that if you calculate the average, it will be related to covariance, but it will tell you a lot more, and it will explicitly, explicitly consume all of your assumptions about uh, uh, whether z is uh, fitness itself or, or, or just a passenger, right? You will have to specify all that. So one has to... And that's what you're doing. One, one has to specify more about the, the process. So you think a, but fitting it into price equation uh, is ambiguous because uh, price equation does not really describe the dynamics. It's only one consequence of underlying dynamics. Do you
4: think the formalism is not adequate enough to make this choice of whether there's natural selection or not? That you need to specify a whole bunch more before you can have
5: the debate at all? Is that what you're saying? Well, one can have a debate. <laughs> he's saying, I think he's well,
1: saying... It's an incomplete description. It's an incomplete description. That, that's the problem. There are the many ways of, uh, of getting this. I thought that's what she's saying.
0: So maybe I can just get through the end of the slides and then
1: we'll rediscuss <laughs> this issue. And, and with luck, we'll learn about the, relevant, the, the relative of Volvox.
0: Yeah, okay. I know incident. you're waiting for that.
1: Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> okay so one... Last thing before I get to volvox is, um, wow. is deer, yes.
2: So,
0: <laughs> no, so, um, so this is, again, assuming the second term is zero, we have this delta Z bar is just the covariance of the trait and the relative fitness. And what Williams pointed out, especially clearly, is that Um, If you're relying on this kind of thinking to identify natural selection, it's very easy to get tripped up. And he used this example of fast deer. He said, in essence, what he said is that you could assume Z is the average speed of a herd and W is the fitness of a herd. And if you just had herds of deer that were randomly aggregated and selected at the lower level, you would see a covariance between average herd speed and fitness of the herd. And you might then wanna say, well, look, average herd speed is evolving by group-level natural selection. Average herd speed is a group-level adaptation. And he said, of course, this is wrong. This goes against our intuition. But really, all that's going on here is lower-level selection. So, This is what I call the fleet deer problem. It's also known as the issue of cross-level byproducts. Um, And so, any kind of partitioning of causes and natural selection kind of has to take into account this issue. Um, So, the vulvucine algae, okay, so. um,
5: Imagine a spherical cow. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: so just to refresh people's memory, um, we have this uh, t- taxon of, al- of um, green algae, where the early branching relatives are unicellular, like this Chlamydomonas reinhardii. And then um, you have what's intuitively recognizable as kind of grades of complexity from very simple colonies um, that just look like clammy-like cells stuck together, to spherical colonies, to spherical colonies with two t- cell types, small cells and large cells, um, and then all the way up to ball box cartery. So, So this taxon is really great for um, getting at empirically this question of group adaptation, because we have a very strong intuition that adaptation at the group level is low here, even though um, there might be a lot of covariance between group trait and group fitness, we wouldn't want to um, necessarily assign a lot of group adaptation to that kind of organism. Um, (coughs) So, as an example, um, think about a group life cycle where these individuals start life stuck to the um, cell wall of the mother that produced them and they grow for a while, still stuck together, swimming around the media, um, but then eventually they become unstuck and they're just swimming around as single cells. And when they grow big enough, they divide and then they produce these two um, cells which are stuck together and start the life cycle over again. Okay? So this is a very simple way to think about how you might get a group life cycle Emerging from something that was just a unicellular organism, just by them temporarily sticking to the mother cell wall. So now imagine that we had um, two strains. So here I'm just calling them dark green and um, light green. And when we compete them, we see, for example, that strain A outcompetes strain B. And now we want to ask the question is this due to group-level selection, or is this just the result of, um, of the, the dark green cells just being better than the light green cells and has nothing to do with the group structure whatsoever? So this is the issue of cross-level byproducts. Um, so the first thing to observe about this case is that the groups are basically homogenous. So group development is just one cell division. So there's extremely limited potential for within group differences in genotype to arise. So, um, so that means there's extremely limited possibility of within group individual level selection. So the kind of individual level sl- of selection that I was talking about with neotic drive, where you know, there's a world within an individual, so where there's cell lineage competition, that basically is not happening in this example (laughs) but that doesn't get rid of the fleet deer problem the cross-level byproducts problem so there's a different sense in which individual level selection can still be happening and so the way we're kind of conceptualizing this problem with respect to traits in the algae specifically and I can talk more about specific traits in the algae but Um, For now, I just kinda wanna outline how we're conceptualizing it, which is that in these very simple colonies, we can basically assume this transmission term is zero. And what that means is there's no change due to within within group selection. But we still have the fleet deer problem, so we need a way to separate out the amount of change in this term into change due to group-specific selection and change due to global individual level selection. And the way we think um, is a good approach to do that is to create um, a regression model of fitness of the colony where you have a trait value. So for example, the different colors of the strains, dark green or light green. And then you have the fitness um, that the colony would have attained if the colony structure itself makes no difference whatsoever. So, if, so you have to know something about the effects of the trait in a completely unicellular population and you have to know how that unicellular population gets constructed into a group life cycle. And once you know those two things, then you know exactly which strain A or B would win if nothing else is going on. And so as long as you have an explicit model of the traits effects in a unicellular environment and how the group life cycle arises, then you have an explicit way to account for a cross-level byproduct. And and that's what's captured in this omega term. Um, So then just by substituting that into the fitness term for the price equation, you end up with um, two separate terms that I think you can Um, attribute to change due to group-specific selection, and so this is change that's actually going to create group adaptation, the thing we're interested in. And this is change that just would have happened anyway if the dark green cells were just better than the light green cells.
1: Do so I understand it correctly? Uh, subscript I indicates dark and light green in this example? Yes, exactly. And so why wouldn't WI involve a, a summation over J so that the light green affect the dark green? Like secretions or a or uh, why aren't they talking to each other, these two different colors?
0: Um, I mean, it's possible that they could be, but I think um, I think it's simpler to suppose that that their fitness is just due to their own traits, not to direct interaction with For the other. Uh,
1: in an actual uh, ecological environment, uh, surely they're going to be interacting in that way. Uh, if if one is better able to take up nutrients.
0: Yeah. It would be a miracle
1: if they were exactly. I mean that's the same true, but clean. you
0: can. So if you. If you just grow them in isolation and evaluate how quickly the population expands. Um,
1: you could design an experiment where they couldn't interact it, it, yeah. put them in separate test tubes.
0: Yes, you could put them in separate test tubes.
1: Right, and, well, that's an interesting problem and, but it's not very realistic in actual.
0: But what I'm saying is that the trait values related to competition can be observed independently of the other strain. So it seems unnecessary it to. It,
1: but in fact, there should be a matrix uh, 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 involving i and j and couplings in, in, a, in a realistic model, I think. The, well, very tough equation.
0: Yeah, that could well be true, but I think.
1: I um, mean, just as a simple example,
2: <laughs> just sum up all the omega i's, just have a constraint on the. You know, what that On total the total,
0: is. sure. Yeah.
2: Would that would not be an actual way to
0: involve... Competition, yeah. 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 Say
2: there was some constraint, that depended on the total or
0: something. Sure. We have
2: the subset of what David's suggesting,
0: but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think...
4: Like, often, for instance, cell behavior in vitro is very different from cell behavior in vivo because there's a lot of interactions mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. So it could be, maybe it could make a difference.
2: That would still be a linear
0: model,
4: right? Yeah.
2: Still
0: yeah. So away. presumably you still... Um... It
1: wouldn't be that hard
0: to So the main point is not really that the actual fitness um, of the cells, although, I mean, those are good thoughts that I think um, incorporating more realism in understanding the fitness of the cells is um, critical for empirical applications of this. Um, But conceptually, the main conclusion is that just by introducing two hierarchical levels, so the cell level and these groups of two cells, we've created three categories of natural selection, not two. So a lot of the debate um, in recent literature has centered around kind of saying, well, the price equation gets the partition wrong because of the the cross-level byproduct issue So let's set the price equation aside and look for other alternatives. And what we're saying here is that it's not so much that the price equation, um, I mean, the price equation doesn't address the cross-level byproduct issues for a lot of the reasons that we've already talked about. But it doesn't mean that this part of it isn't still going on. That if this part is zero, you can still say there's no within-group individual level selection then there's a separate issue of, of distinguishing these two kinds of selection. So it's a somewhat counterintuitive conclusion that two hierarchical levels create three possible
1: categories of selection. Just a point of information. Tell me again the meaning of epsilon.
0: <laughs> um, so that's an error term just... Um, encompassing the variation in fitness that's not accounted for in our model. So it's just a, a traditional so, so multiple. That, that, would,
1: that would vary, for example, from time slice to time slice.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there would be differences in detail if you re-ran the, the, the tape of evolution. Mm-hmm. Or it could be distinctive right? It could be a,
6: the very interaction terms that uh,
1: they're interested
5: in.
0: Yeah. Okay, and so that's,
2: just, just one yeah, sure. Question. So does, does this assume that there's no interaction
6: between the ZI and the mega?
0: Um Yes, so, I, and that's a major assumption that, um, I think if there is, then, then I think the insight of Williams really has to be reconsidered, that, that there is such a thing as separating cross-level byproducts from genuine group selection. Yes.
3: So, for the, um, so you're in your thought experiment here, you're comparing two groups, two different mm-hmm. collectives, you call it? Right. Um, to think about how multicellularity could have evolved, wouldn't you want to take the same organism and compare a collective that that organism forms versus the single cell and call that single cell a collective? and then see how that plays out because that would be the only way that multicellularity would arise from that single taking a single cell and then forming a group
0: yeah so I mean I think you definitely need the comparison of what's going on in the unicellular population Um, but kind of the thought experiment here is you know imagine something that could be neutral at first it's as simple as just the daughter cells sticking to the parent uh, cells, if you want to then understand, like once you get this group life cycle, um, are the traits that are adaptive based on the group life cycle the same as the traits that were already adaptive when you just had the unicellular life cycle? That's the question you need to ask to kind of address group adaptation.
6: So the critical thing here is that you have an explicit notion of groups begetting groups. So it makes sense to ask this question. Yeah. If groups can't get groups, there's no evolution. Yeah. But, but that's the, I mean, that's, that sort of gets to the heart of the price equation difficulty for me. So I, I, I mean, I like this. If you've got an explicit term and you can separate out effects truly uh, due to uh, selection between groups,
1: So have you guys actually done experiments on vulvacine organisms to to test some of these ideas? Um, So no,
0: these ideas right now are um, still in the idea phase. I definitely have ideas about experiments to test these ideas. And um, as you might expect, they involve really, um, really delving into how traits relate to fitness in the unicell and then looking at those traits in the very simplest, um, earliest branching colonies, and saying, um, are those traits different in the earliest branching colonies? And if so, um, you know, if we separate out those cells, can we see an effect of um, those trait differences that's due to the group structure itself? So I think those are the kinds of experiments that we get at.
5: What I think yeah. correctly, is basically to talk about uh, group selection. Group selection, I, uh, I can think of as interactions between uh, individual components of
1: okay.
5: the mm-hmm. am, am I correct? So, if I want to, uh, uh, so one way of trying to represent the uh, like group effect appearing in the collective of an individual can ask, what are the interactions between how does the fitness of uh, one and the presence of the other, for example, right? which would be very well defined, for example, in the context of uh, clumping yeast or things like this, right?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure.
5: It would very much appear as an interaction term.
0: I mean, I think it certainly could appear as an interaction term. I don't think it has to, because because um, imagine, even if each cell independently um, has its color, say, but say in a, if the population were only unicellular, this color was favored. Whereas for some reason that we can you know, describe relating the color to resource acquisition or whatever, that, that this color in the group context is worse than this.
5: But isn't that, so you
0: the color exactly of each individual does not have to do with an different interaction different of the cells. Terms.
5: This is basically saying the effect of the color depends on uh, the number of uh, neighbors.
0: No, it just depends on there being a group structure. It doesn't depend on the number The number in the group, so.
1: But I think, in, again, in an actual more faithful rendition ecologically of this competition, space is gonna be important. And literally the number of light green around dark green is gonna matter. And if you want to go beyond a simple oversimplified, in my view, panmictic description, I think you'll have to consider these interactions that Boris is talking about, and space. Uh, I I mean, it's a great step, perhaps, in illuminating this more philosophical argument, but I I think that's the way to go to to make contact with what's going on outside this uh, institute in in, in the world. Um, So where does the... What does Christ mean by altruism,
2: and where does that emerge from all
0: this? Um, Let me go back a little bit. So, the problem with altruism (coughs) is related to this um, difference between selection at the higher level and selection at the lower level. So if in this example you just think, (coughs) excuse me, you think of the black circles as representing groups with more altruists, then here you have the more altruists in the group, the better the group is doing. The fewer altruists, so this one has one altruist and one non-altruist, that has two non-altruists. So the fewer the altruists in the group, the worse the altruists are doing. But then if you look within the group that's mixed, the group that has an altruist and a defector, then the defectors are always doing better. And that's what's driving this change, this change from mid-gray to lighter gray. And so the fact that this problem of altruism is kind of, in essence, a multi-level selection problem is why Price um, ended up with kind of this partition and focusing on, on applying mm-hmm. the partition in a hierarchically nested way.
4: Yes. Excuse me, so at, at the very end, when you had this uh, thought experiment on these uh, dark green cells and light green cells, then how would you measure Z in that experiment? You you remember these seeds that you talked about.
0: So in that experiment, it would just be the average color of a colony. Okay, Okay, so that's all I have. Thank you.
2: any questions that
3: uh, were addressed <laughs> <laughs> just to say that actually um, this was the first time that I really followed um, the price equation and I read Akasha's books several <laughs> times <laughs> and I've always missed the point I think but this really captures it for me it also just highlights well, for me two things that, that um, you know the way people think about living and non-living systems are so fundamentally different it seems you know physicists you know think and speak about it in terms that are that um, that maybe when we think about it like, like this don't become that important actually we need to develop a conceptual um, um, way first of trying to measure something and and really make it as general as possible and then and then only can you start to break it down into into different into different components and different physical constraints and so on. And uh, I think, I mean, it's just the first time. I think my problem was I was always trying to think of specific examples. And that's why I could never really find the price equation (laughs) because I was always thinking about the details. So,
6: yeah. I think those details really do matter. And this is where it becomes, you know, I think the price equation is a great, a very general and abstract way of thinking about things, you know, it's mathematically correct it's intuitively correct um, but then you start sitting down and going well in the context of evolutionary transitions what does it mean? And then you start thinking about process you know, and then therein lies the difficulty I think that there aren't explicit terms for processes that we need to envisage we know go on which aren't encapsulated in the price equation I think